Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Live from GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. There are new developments in the controversy over concerns that David Ralston may have used his position as Speaker of the House to the advantage of clients in his legal practice. We'll update the story and ask our panel if Ralston's political future could be in jeopardy. It now appears that President Trump's trade war with China could play out over months, if not longer. How are weaponizing tariffs affecting Georgia consumers and producers like the ag industry here? If you needed more proof that the 2020 elections in Georgia are starting remarkably early and that suburban Republicans fear they could lose more legislative seats, new evidence arrived in the mailboxes of voters in East Cobb County this week. We'll explain. First, the news. Live from the GPB Newsroom, good afternoon. I'm Drew Dawson. Just ahead, it is Political Rewind with Bill Nygut, but first in GPB News, Georgia State Insurance and Safety Fire Commissioner Jim Beck has been indicted on 38 counts by a federal grand jury. This according to, according to Fox 5 News. The indictment alleges wire fraud, mail fraud, and money laundering. The Republican is also accused of defrauding a state-established insurance company by helping to set up fake companies to produce false invoices. Beck was elected to the statewide office last November. Previously, the Carrollton native served as deputy commissioner and chief of staff for then-commissioner Ralph Hudgens. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta has scheduled a press conference later this afternoon to lay out more details of the case. DeKalb County legislators want to meet with Governor Brian Kemp after he vetoed a bill protecting the county's school district from annexation. 
GPB's Ross Terrell has more. Atlanta annexed more than 700 acres of DeKalb County last year, including Emory University and the CDC. Atlanta Public Schools also tried to expand its borders, but DeKalb School District officials sued, claiming they would lose more than $2 million in revenue. The veto legislation would have made it illegal for APS to do just that. Stephen Green is the DeKalb School's superintendent. He says they will keep fighting. Senate Bill 53 is coming back. This encroachment, this infringement on DeKalb County and DeKalb County School District must stop. Governor Kemp says he vetoed the bill in part because it would invite lawsuits. For GPB News, I'm Ross Terrell in Atlanta. For more Georgia news, go to gpbnews.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Subaru, featuring the all-new three-row ascent, with seating for up to eight and the choice of second-row captain's chairs. Love, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. I'm glad everybody out there is here for today's Political Rewind. Uh, of course, you can listen to us, as some of you may be doing right now, on uh, the radio, but you can also watch us on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB News page on Facebook, and you'll see us there. I've said it many times. That's where we get a chance to see your really interesting comments as you talk back and forth about the topics that we're discussing here on the show. Our Twitter handle is uh, at politicsgpb. And on Monday night, June 3rd, we're going to be in Cartersville, Georgia, recording the show in front of a live audience. Go to politicsgpb.org. Click on the link to order your free tickets for the event there. I got all of the business out of the way uh, quickly because we have some breaking news to talk about. And uh, then we have follow-ups on a number of stories that have been of great importance to uh, people who are paying attention to Georgia politics throughout the show today. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here with us. Kevin, it's great to have you here today. Always good to be here. Next to you uh, is uh, Ed Lindsay. He is a former Republican member of the House, represented Atlanta, and uh, is an attorney at Denton's, where he oversees their Georgia uh, government affairs practice. That's right. Ed, can we reveal to our listeners what you and your <laughs> wife did? I think we need to humanize you even more than you've been humanized on this yes, show. Yes, you can. We're quite you, proud of I it. opened <laughs> Facebook last week and saw a post from you. That just delighted me. Where were you and what did you do? Uh, Elizabeth and I were having a, a delightful weekend with friends in Las Vegas and sort of a spur of the moment thing. We decided, uh, all of us, to go and renew our vows at the, uh, if I could give a plug, to the Graceland Chapel uh, and have Elvis himself uh, uh, deliver the renewal of our wedding vow. Yeah, you, what were a couple of the lines from the ceremony? Uh, I was asked uh, not to be a hound dog. Uh, she, was, she was asked to love me tender and to not send me to the Heartbreak Hotel. Uh, well, Ed, I'm glad you told that story for all the people out there who think lawyers lead stuffy, boring lives. It was a delightful time. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor from Georgia State University, is back with us today. We're going to need your legal mind today as we talk about some of the stories in the news. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And right next to you, Theron Johnson, 
a major uh, player in Democratic Party politics in Georgia, in the Southeast. He uh, works has worked over the years with many Democratic candidates, and um, one of his credentials includes uh, running the Southeastern uh, campaign for the reelection of President Barack Obama. I think, Theron, you told us last time you were here, you're not looking to recruit ca- candidates for this cycle. You're going to stay a little bit free, or is that changing at all? As of right now, I'm a, a free agent. Okay. All right. Thanks for being here today, Theron. <laughs> Uh, let's go to the breaking news. We have just learned about the, within the last hour that insurance commissioner Jim Beck has been indicted by the feds on 38 counts in the indictment. Kevin Riley, uh, some of those counts have to do with creating fake. This was before, of course, he was insurance commissioner. These charges have been under investigation for quite some time. Some of these have to do with creating fake companies and then uh, making false reports about claims. Um, You know, this is an example of a guy who who allegedly, when he decided to allegedly commit crimes, went big. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, For those who are really interested, you can find an actual copy of the indictment at AJC.com. But the charges say that he spent... He, he set up schemes that earned him millions of dollars, some of which he used in his campaign for, for insurance commissioner. And he, he spent thousands on personal investments, uh, expenses, and to improve rental property and to pay his state and federal taxes. All this according to the indictment. So if, if these charges turn out to be true, it's an amazing story. <laughs> Wouldn't you say it? It's going to be a very amazing story. I mean, it's, it, the allegations are just plain old-fashioned insurance fraud. Yeah. He... Um... Uh, he is just his. He's just issued. His attorney has just issued a statement, which uh, Robert Jimison just brought in. Insurance Commissioner Jim Beck has retained uh, William Bill Thomas of W. H. Thomas firm uh, to represent him in connection with the federal indictment handed down today. Uh, I'm looking. I'm. I'm just going through this for the first time, so I apologize. Uh, any accusation. That he defrauded. Jim strongly denies these charges, and we intend to mount a vigorous defense. Jim is justifiably proud of the work that he did uh, when he was with the Georgia Underwriting Association, uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, and and they finally say we are also pleased to note that these allegations do not relate to Jim's performance <laughs> as commissioner of insurance. Among other things, he's led the fight against insurance fraud and for transparency. Uh, Theron, you know, there was a pretty good Democratic candidate who uh, ran against him in 2018, Janice Laws, and uh, but Beck dis- uh, disposed of her pretty handily, and now he's going to have to step down from this position. Yeah, what's very interesting, Bill, is that I vaguely remember um, some sort of chatter amongst insiders in Georgia about um, the Republican nominee for this position, but it never really, you know, materialized with any evidence. And I'm a big believer in not rushing to judgment, but when you have this type of uh, indictments with this type of allegations, it's very hard to believe 
that Commissioner Beck would be able to survive. I think you're, you're right, Bill. I think he will probably have to step down immediately. I would also say not to bring partisanship in this because I don't want to do that, but I think objectively here, uh, I would assume that the governor's office has probably known that this investigation was ongoing. And so uh, now what's going to be very interesting to see is when he has an opportunity to appoint someone, who would that person be? Yeah, let's give our uh, our good friend Dale Russell at Fox 5, the investigative reporter there, a shout out because Dale was on this story months ago and did a lot of the reporting uh, on it that we now see confirmed by the uh, uh by the indictment. Uh, Ed, you you know the law on this. What's it, what are the next steps? Yeah, just to give the, the, the listeners a, a little uh, sh- short uh, breakdown on the process, uh, once the indictment is received by the governor, a, a commission is set up uh, consisting of the attorney general and two other state elected officials who uh, – who review the who review the situation? Uh, if uh, Commissioner uh, Beck does not voluntarily step down within four day, fourteen days, they have to conduct a uh, a post haste investigation and make a recommendation uh, that he whether or not he's he's he is to stay in office. It usually gets tied to uh, whether or not the the charges are are somehow closely connected to the. Uh, the operation of his office, and in this particular case, it appears to be quite closely related. <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, and 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 you know, and I do agree with Theron that you know you shouldn't have rushed to judgment. This is a mere indictment, but in terms of the short-term process, it is hard to see how he won't at least be asked to step aside, uh, or required to step aside, pending the uh, the criminal uh, in, uh, process. You know, Amy, one of the points we should make here, I think is that the insurance commissioner is, in terms of statewide constitutional officers, he falls down a little lower on the totem pole. But uh, it's an incredibly significant position. It's a position that involves hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and uh, so this is, it is no small thing if the insurance commissioner uh, is forced to step down. That's very true, and I think that the the indictment, as Ed and I attempted to read it as quickly as possible, is extremely detailed, that this was not sort of a small matter. They're alleging that he created uh, various uh, companies where he was the sort of owner, sole employee, and sole beneficiary, and with each of them, the sort of purpose was to... Uh, well, defraud the state of Georgia, actually, on insurance fraud. And so um, I think the problem is sort of as um, Theron and others were mentioning, you know, the connection here between what he's being alleged to have done and his statewide position, I think is what also makes it even more so um, kind of crucial that the governor is going to have to act quickly because it doesn't send a good sign to have the person in charge of the insurance commission being alleged of multiple counts of well, Which have to do with the the insurance, with insurance department fraud. itself. Hey, Ed, back to the process. So you said the a commission is automatically set up? Uh, yeah, it's automatically set up once the governor receives the, the indictment. Uh, there is a sort of a 14-day period which gives the elected official time to voluntarily uh, step aside. Uh, before the commission actually starts to and does the governor appoint the attorney general's on and the governor appoint the other two people? Yes. Okay. I want to. I want to. I went back to this news release which I was just handed. The statement from the attorneys for Beck 
because as you were talking about the process and yeah. he has the opportunity to step down uh, voluntarily, I looked for this. The last sentence of this news release says, Jim looks forward to continuing his work as insurance commissioner protecting Georgia consumers. Now, that's first blush. It is first blush, and, and let's see what, what happens over the next few days. Like I said, there is a grace period set up within the state constitution. Since he is a constitutional office, that's, that's the place that has the process uh, for having him uh, suspended for a certain period of time until the charges are resolved. I, like I said, I don't have a rush to judgment, um, and I don't want to rush to judgment like Theron said, but it is going to be hard to see how he could stay in office during the pendency of the criminal charges. Is it, Theron? Yeah, you could jump in, Theron. No, and I, and I think, Bill, I'm so glad you went back to the statement. That last sentence is what made me to believe, and I think we all kind of maybe touched on it, is that he has no plans at this moment of stepping down. And so I go back to the governor and also for Republicans to say, okay, let's make sure this is as smooth as process as possible because what you don't want in either party is to have an insurance commissioner who is responsible. And you guys, you remember this campaign on the Democratic side and the Republican side, the common theme that we heard throughout the campaign was eliminating fraud. Yeah. I mean, yeah. eliminating insurance fraud in Georgia. I, I remember uh, in the Democratic primary, the two, two or three people I think were running, I think it was two, um, that's, that was the whole debate. And so I find it very hard to believe, to Amy's point, and also to Ed's point, that, you know, how do you now operate this office with these allegations and these indictments? I think yeah. that's right. I, I assume, Amy, and maybe Ed will be the one with lightness about this, but I assume although there's a formal process, that there's a grace period, I assume there is nothing that uh, prevents the governor himself from calling Jim back <laughs> and saying, Jim, <laughs> I don't want to go through this. I think that's part I, of the I heard Nygut yes. say that the last line of the news release is, I'm not leaving. I think you should, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's part of the reason for the 14-day process exactly. is to give time for have this sort of uh, informal discussions going, okay, you know, you've got, you've got the very serious situation. You've got 38 counts against you. Uh, you may very be totally uh, innocent and will be, uh, be uh, found not guilty uh, or the charges will be dismissed, but shouldn't you be focusing on that and let your your department focus on, on yeah. the very important and just to and be clear, the governor, does the governor appoint the, uh, if he leaves office, yes. how is he replaced? Yeah. Yes, he's appointed uh, and uh, the Senate, uh, when it comes back into session, will approve the governor's appointment. Amy, you said it. They, they don't need this hanging over their heads, the Republicans. I don't think so. And I think the other thing that is sort of important as we sort of talk about, well, I mean, we don't know, in fact, if the allegations are true. They're merely being alleged. And so there is the fact that he doesn't have to resign. Right. What can what triggers this is that it can either be that he resigns or he asks to be suspended for the duration of this. Right. And in that yes. per, like if that happens, then the governor would still right appoint a temporary replacement. But there are ways that, you know, he can, I guess, perhaps do so in a way that is not fully. I'm just I'm resigning in shame. Instead, I'm sort of stepping to the side while I yeah. fight. Right. this. And that's what the commission would do, would yeah. be would basically have him step right. aside, would not necessarily force him for office, but simply have him step aside. All right. It's a it's a, a story that will continue to play out in the weeks ahead. And of course, we will uh, follow it here. And by the way, before Cody Hall, the governor's press secretary, bothers sending me a text saying, you said the governor pays attention to what you say. You're wrong, Bill. I understand that. Don't worry. <laughs> I know he's not listening. Uh, Kevin, 
The AJC was the news organization that broke a story some months ago, at the very earliest days of the uh, session, that uh, alleged that David Ralston was taking advantage of his position as Speaker of the House to get delays in court cases, he's an attorney, in cases of... Uh, in which uh, uh, there were trials that were, or motion hearings, whatever. He continued to ask for delays over and over, for continuances, citing his work in the legislature as the reason that he couldn't do it. And the reason it rose to probably the level that you all took it to in terms of the way you played it up was that in some cases, we're talking about defendants he was representing with serious criminal charges against them, and yet month after month after month, there was no action in court. And uh, the story will not go away. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the things I think that really resonated with people upon our uh, publishing of the original story was that one of his clients accused of a very serious crime said, and I quote, that's why I gave him 20000 bucks. He's worth every penny of it because he could get cases delayed. And so now what we have is a co- uh, two women who filed complaints with the state bar of Georgia. And, they, and those complaints say that uh, the speaker was misleading judges when he used that legislative privilege to delay hearings because he was going to fundraisers and he wasn't doing legislative duties. Now, the, the speaker, uh, in reaction to that, has said that um, that these these things are not correct and they are misunderstanding. So um, I'm looking for his exact quote. Here, here's what you say in uh, the article with your reporter. Is it uh, uh, Bluestein? No, Johnny Edwards reported this story. In 2015, Ralston used legislative leave to put off a pretrial conference in a domestic violence case. But he then attended a golf tournament fundraiser for himself in a North Georgia mountain resort with his supporter presenting him with a $289 box of cigars. Campaign finance records show. Um, Theron, uh, the other thing that has happened here is that Eric Erickson, the comet conservative analyst, commentator over on uh, 88, I mean, uh, AM 750, who is increasingly inserting himself into local and, and state politics, which is interesting. He's called on the legislature to censor, censure uh, David Ralston. Uh, so he cannot get out from under the shadow of this, it seems. Well, look, I support Speaker Ralston, um, and it's probably shocking for a lot of our listeners. This is the one where you got to really look at this objectively. This is a speaker who has had a successful term as speaker, and I do think he will continue to be the Speaker of the House as long as he wants to be there. What really was interesting uh, in Kevin's uh, description of what happened, uh, I broke this on um, a TV show, Georgia Gang, but I, I believe, and Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the speaker has um, basically no longer represents that client who made that very bizarre statement. So want to report for our listeners that that, that gentleman who made that um, statement is no longer a client of the speaker. Then we had three other cases that the AJC reported, and I was told by a reliable source that the speaker would have either completed the client's uh, cases by the end of, I think, next month, 
or would have basically released the case. So for our listeners, yes, when we first heard about it, everyone sort of kind of gawked at it and said, wow, these are some very uh, troubling cases. And so then the other thing that I know Ed is going to talk about is that this speaker took immediate action. He said, I want to create this bipartisan uh, commission to look at this. So I do think that it will not go away, Bill. And I know this is something that the speaker and his staff kind of wants to go away. But I do think that having a fundraiser at a time where you had requested legislative leave, at a time where you're the speaker of the Georgia General Assembly, which is a full-time job, which you're expected to raise money for your fellow members and yourself, I think it's kind of an interesting connection to me because these legislators can only raise money eight months out of the year. And so while, yeah, given a $289 box of cigars, that must have been some really, really good cigars. And I hope the speaker, <laughs> if he's listening, he'll invite me up to Blue Ridge and smoke one of them with him. Um, but, you know, he was doing his job as speaker, in which the AJC reported. So I just wanted to get that in. All right. Uh, Ed, you were, uh, you were one yeah. of the people who was assigned to be on the, uh, the bipartisan panel that looked at what to do about yeah. uh, situations like this where legislators claim they have responsibilities yeah. in the legislature and they try to get court delays. Yeah. And you came to a, a conclusion. We you came, you came very, up with recommendations. We, 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 we put forth a very strong recommendation. Unfortunately, it passed over, out of the House very quickly. Uh, the commission, like you like was mentioned, was bipartisan. It was me and Ronnie Maber, who's another former state House member, uh, we had both the majority leader and the minority leader from the House uh, on it, as well as eight uh, very high-profile trial lawyers, uh, both on the uh, civil side and the criminal side, uh, participate as well as an advocate for, for victims' rights on the commission. And we came up with, I thought, a very strong uh, recommendation uh, in terms of the allegations here. Uh, some of the things that we came up with will address that. In particular, if you want to leave, you have to state it with, with what's called particularity, which has a specific meaning in the law, which means you got to lay it out in detail exactly where you're going. You can't simply just say, I've got legislative business. And it also sets up a process for anyone to object to it and for the judge to utilizing four factors determine whether or not it's in the best interest of justice to allow the leave or not. So I think we went a long way toward trying to address it last session. I was very pleased to see both the House and Senate uh, take our recommendations and run with them and to have the governor sign it. Yeah, um, Amy, um, let's pick up on what Theron said. Theron, uh, uh, the Democrat, Uh, likes the Republican Speaker of the House, uh, David Ralston. And I think that's an important comment for him to make. Ralston has been sort of the cooling saucer in, in, in legislation over the years that he's had that job. He has He's the one who's fought religious liberty tooth and nail, um, among other things that some people uh, here feel are too extreme uh, to go into law in Georgia. So as a Democrat, you're not necessarily celebrating the fact that Ralston could be in some jeopardy. Number one, he could get a primary challenge up in his district up there in Blue Ridge. And number two, even if he wins re-election, there's already a number of Republicans in the House who are saying they don't want him to return as speaker. So, but, but, and there may be good reason for that. But all I'm saying is this isn't as partisan an issue as some people would like to think it might be. 
Yes, I think that's very true. And one of the interesting parts is that while generally we think of the House as being the more rambunctious body, that's really not true in the Georgia Assembly. Um, Ralston runs a type shit. They work very well together with the minority leader. Uh, there's a lot of consensus about how things are handled there. Um, a lot of the sort of issues that sparked, uh, especially around the Senate side this time, we didn't see sort of being similarly mirrored over on the House in how uh, legislation was being dealt with and even things like uh, the rules to start off the session. And so I think that that comes into some of it of part of the concern is, right, and we sort of say it as sort of a, you know, an old refrain but you know better the devil that you know and so who knows who would be the next speaker whether or not in fact it would be someone that does in fact get along with the minority leader uh, and other leaders as well as he does and I think that's where some of the concern you know and the other side of it is the hope that the commission that Ed was on that that really addresses a lot of the issues there were a lot of loopholes that were there there were a lot of ways that this could even if it was not incorrect might be stretching the bounds and it's probably best for everybody that a lot of those loopholes were removed and now you know for example yeah. that you have to state specifically what it is you're doing and that a judge can question whether or not it's happening because previously they couldn't do that so i'm gonna put back on my partisan hat i took my partisan hat off for a while <laughs> <laughs> so let's 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 go back to a name you mentioned um bill and that is eric erickson and this is a question for for ed what was very striking to me is and as amy just did a really good job of, of explaining is and it's a question, is this some type of conservative, uh, I don't want to use the word radical because there's a couple reps down there that don't like when I use the word <laughs> radical, but there's a more conservative Georgia wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. I think that's a way to explain it. And when this first came out, you saw that conservative wing of the Republican Party immediately start to attack this speaker. Hmm. So the question is, and it's kind of want to pose to my good friend Ed, because Ed, when he, uh, he was a state representative, he was one of those state reps you were talking about, Amy, mm -hmm. that we as Democratic lobbyists could actually <laughs> at least go have a sensible conversation with. Like, is this sort of a retaliatory attempt from a conservative part, a more conservative part of the Republican Party? Because this speaker, as Bill just talked about, was one who was side-by-side -side fighting RIFA uh, with Governor Deal. Uh, this is a speaker side by side that is very pro-business and yeah. wanted to make sure that this city did not do, I mean, the state didn't do anything that will hurt our brand. Do you think that this movement is getting legs? And if so, um, why is it, why do we see more of the conservative members of the Republican Party attacking the speaker who's done a good job of working across party lines to get things done for George? Well, first off, as as you well know, you, you can't take politics out of politics. Exactly. Uh, and so there's always sort of somewhat of a political uh, element to this. I will say this, that there were a, a lot of members who were very close with the Speaker. Uh, I consider myself one of the people close with the Speaker. He and I had a good working relationship when I was the whip and he was the Speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, that were, however, wanting to make sure that this law got tightened up uh, so that uh, even if the allegations raised in the AJC <clears throat> article were not 100% correct, there was at least a perception problem and they wanted to make sure that perception problem was dealt with. And, uh, you know, and I give the speaker credit for, for taking that on. So, you know, certainly I'm sure that there are some folks who, who are seeing this as, as a way to get back at the speaker. Uh, that's always uh, something that you've got to be concerned about. I know that there were other folks who were sincerely concerned about at least the perception problems and wanting to see it fixed. But. I got I to get to a break, but Kevin, one quick question before I do. Um, 
there are there's no question that Ralston went through this session uh, weakened. Uh, and when you think about him potentially having a primary fight on his hands in his own district and then trying to return as speaker, you can't help but wonder, given what we've all said about him being much more pragmatic in terms of the legislation that he uh, tries to embrace, whether the abortion bill, 481, would have had such a, uh, uh, would have moved so uh, smoothly through the House had Ralston been in the same position of strength that he has been for years before now. Right. I, I, uh, I'm going to put my journalist hat on. How about that, Theron? Uh, <laughs> does it fit and, it? Or and it and I will say back? this. Um, <laughs> I think it was fair to say at the start of the session or before the, this this reporting came out that David Ralston was the most powerful politician in the state. You could make that argument. And I think with such power comes even greater accountability. And if we are going to be the kind of state we need to be, then we must hold our leaders to a high standard, the highest standards. All right. I got to get to a break. Um, We got a lot more to talk about on today's show, and uh, we'll be gone for just a moment. Hey, before we leave. I do. I'm looking through to the control room, and Bailey Walker, our intern from the University of Georgia, is uh, directing the show today. I see you sitting there, Bailey. Your last day as an intern on Political Rewind, and I just want to say it's been wonderful to have you here. I know you're off to an internship at CNN News Source, where you will do great things. Thank you, Bailey. Would you now take us to a break, please? This is it. Today is the last day of the stealthy part of GPB's Stealth Drive. Thanks to everyone we've heard from so far in support of the services GPB provides. As we've been letting you know, our hope is that listeners like you would appreciate getting more programming and less fundraising so much that we'd see the same level of support that comes in during a traditional spring fund drive. That's simply what it takes to cover the costs of the programs you rely on and enjoy. Beginning tomorrow, we'll start traditional live on-air fundraising to wrap up the drive. But the number of days is up to you. Your support right now will help keep on-air fundraising to an absolute minimum. We're counting on you to do your part now. Call 800-222-4788. That's 800-222-4788. Or donate online at gpb.org. Thank you for supporting GPB. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, There is a super PAC uh, called America First Action, which has declared that it is going to do its best to get President Trump reelected in six states that they feel are crucial to his reelection in 2020. Uh, They are prepared to spend $300 million or more, they say. They haven't said how much money they've raised at this point. And uh, George is one of the states. Uh, Amy, they here's how the calculation that they figure, and one of the reasons they think Georgia is, is a state they can take. They, they believe that that uh, Trump will start with a million nine votes here in Georgia. They base that on the fact that that's the number of votes, essentially, that Brian Kemp won last year. They think it'll take two and a half million votes to win the state, and so they're going to focus their energy on attracting 600,000 voters, suburbanites primarily, back to the Trump side. Um, and so they're coming in here. Who knows how much money they'll have to drop? 
but it's an interesting calculation. Well, I think it really reflects one of the things that, you know, many of the people that are on the show have been saying sort of for quite a while that Georgia is very much so really kind of a purple state, right? It's not sure which way it's going to go as it comes up into the presidential election. Um, the other side of this is that we've seen sort of big changes happening at the General Assembly, particularly in uh, the metro Atlanta area of who is being represented and the fact that there's now a couple of um, representatives who are very clear cognizant about the fact that they might be on the outs. And so all of that together, it's about sort of keeping that majority in the state house it's all about ensuring that um george is also probably a good pick for trump because david perdue has been one of his uh sort of most vocal supporters and so this is a way to also help because perdue is going to face you know definitely a well-funded uh opposition but theron um spending a lot of money is certainly an important element in this but what republicans are going to have to be able to do in 2020 is somehow match what Democrats did in 2018 in those districts, especially in the northern suburban arc. And that's put out foot soldiers who went canvassing in every apartment, every house, turned out voters, encouraged people to get involved. And there are significant questions as to whether Republicans are as adept at that as Republicans have become, as Democrats have become. Well, this is good news and bad news for both parties. Let's start with the good news and bad news for Democrats. The good news is, is that, as Amy just articulated, is that Georgia is a battleground state. And so for a Republican super PAC to come out this early and say that we're going to target Georgia, that's a good news. The bad news is, is that now you're going to have an influx of money, even more than was anticipated, to come in and make sure that not only President Trump gets reelected by uh, carrying Georgia, but it also helps David Perdue. The bad news for Republicans is this, exactly what you just talked about, Bill, is that now you have sent a wide alert to all the Democratic donors, all the different super PACs to say, OK, if they're getting involved this early, then we're going to put even more money than what we put in to help um, the Democratic ticket for the gubernatorial. The bad, the, the, the good news for the Republicans um, is that you now will have the assistance you need to basically, you know, compete in this in this battleground state. The other thing that I think that President Trump is not going to have a problem with now, he's got a long list of problems, the things that he's going to have to explain to the American people. I won't even get into those, but he's never, ever, uh, to my knowledge, was ever really worried about having a problem with resources. But the question with Georgia is going to be is this, and it's very interesting that they're focusing on 600,000 because we know, based on what former Secretary of State Brian Kemp did, which is now Governor Kemp, is that you had automatic registration. And so Republicans are paying very, very close attention to a lot of these 18-year-olds and older people who are going to get their driver's license for the first time who are automatically registering. And I mm -hmm. would suspect, and I know the AJC is working on this, I would love to know the sort of, if they have a voting record or just the basic demographics of these new registered voters. And so it's interesting the 600,000 increase was intentional because I think they suspect that that's going to be the battleground. Yeah. There, and I have to ask you this, though. You've run big campaigns, and I know it's got something to he wants to say, but um, if you, if someone said to you today, how much money are you, are, is a party going to have to spend to win in Georgia? What, what number would you say? I would say at least $50 million. Um, because, and I say at least, to win it, I think you had to get upwards to $75 million. If you look at what Stacey Abrams was able to raise, she got to that $45, 50000000 million number. And she showed that you got to have enough money to promote yourself, introduce yourself, but you got to respond to the attacks. I think the Democrat 
he or she who will get elected in Georgia statewide is going to have to be prepared to have anywhere between 75 to $100 million collectively to win. Ed, jump in. Well, uh, a couple of points. One dealing with, with, with math, and that's always dangerous for a history major to discuss math. But there is a certain <laughs> mathematical formula here. I mean, uh, Kemp got about 1.9 million votes in the last election when it was a 61 percent turnout. You ought to anticipate or somewhere around a 75 to 80 percent turnout in the next election. So, you know, a lot of this boost up is, is, is simple math. Secondly, and and I don't think either side is going to have a problem with raising money. Mm-hmm. Uh, both, you know, there's going to be a ton of money flooding in, not just this state but other states. Third point is I don't think that either side has to worry about tipping off the other side because I think both sides understand that Georgia is a battleground state. My last point, and this is what I really wanted to get to, is there comes a point when money doesn't matter anymore, when money is just white noise to the to the to the listener or to the viewer on television. And you show me the campaign that has the best ground campaign, Republican or Democratic, primary, uh, that's the candidate who I'm going to bet on, is whoever has the best ground campaign. And that's going to be the real fight for both the Democrats and Republicans next year, is who can put together. And that leads to the question for Republicans on who gets uh, elected as their new chairman in the state convention is next uh, Saturday. Next, yeah. And and therein lies all, you know, and I'm a delegate, uh, therein lies all the campaign on both sides as they're talking about who can put together the best ground campaign because therein, and therein's run campaigns and I've run campaigns, uh, therein lies the, the question on who wins and who loses. Amy? Well, and as just to sort of follow up to a question both for Theron and for Ed is, how does this also influence, right? I mean, we saw in the last campaign, and I'm imagining we're going to continue to see it in 2020, especially in the congressional seats and then the sort of, you know, state assembly seats, this question of how closely are you tied to Trump and what is this going to mean? If we already know that there is this very large super PAC who is coming in, I mean, obviously he's probably going to be the Republican nominee for president, but I think there is still also this sort of other question of to what degree are particularly Republican candidates going to maybe want to distance themselves, especially those in the areas that they most need to target in order to make up that deficit? I think with Senator Perdue, I mean, he has been the key ally, I think probably the most public and private uh, and most uh, robust ally of this president. So I think you won't see a pivot from him at all, President Trump. Yeah. But your question is great, Amy. Well, you got to watch this in Congressional District 7 and 6. Let's just mm-hmm. hypothetically say that my good friend, Chairman Brandon Beach, uh, Ed is like, but this boy yeah. is discussing more Republican <laughs> politics. <laughs> now, this is a man who was in the uh, state Senate, who's still there, who's yeah. got a recommendation, I mean, a reputation for working with Democrats to get transit. Let's say he becomes the nominee. Mm-hmm. Do you see him embrace Trump? I don't know. But we know if Karen Handel, if she becomes a nominee, I think you will see the embracement. The one thing that Brian Kemp pulled off successfully while running for governor is that he and I, and I, and I was something that Ed said, I would take Stacey Abrams ground game and what she created and is still building upon and put it against any Republican candidate who's ever mm-hmm. run before. Right. I think what we saw is that the, the ground game for Republicans in Georgia is President Trump. And once he came down here and got in middle Georgia yeah. and yeah. rallied up that base. And so I think that's that's the key. But I don't know what you think. All right. well, I, I, real quick, because I got to get to a break again. Real quick, um, dealing with Purdue, here's the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, he has embraced Trump. Uh, Isaacman has shown a little bit of daylight between himself and Trump. And yet uh, it is Purdue's uh, favorable, unfavorable numbers that are a whole lot better. 
yeah. than Isaacson's. And they're better than Isaacson's. They're better than Trump himself in yeah. Georgia. Yeah. And they're better than uh, Brian Kemp in yeah. Georgia. All right. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, take up briefly a, a story that relates to what we're talking about now. I mentioned it on the show yesterday, if you were listening. Um, we have a flyer that Sharon Cooper, a, f- a full-color, four-page flyer, that she has now sent out to constituents, which celebrates her accomplishments in this last legislative session. And I want to talk about why that's really an interesting mailing that's gone out at this point in the campaign, and it relates to the conversation we're having right now. We'll get to that after this break. This is it, your final opportunity to keep traditional on-air fundraising on GPB to a minimum this spring. Thanks to everyone who's given so far during GPB Stealth Drive, we're able to cut traditional fundraising days from two weeks down to just a few days. Now's your chance to make a difference before live on-air fundraising starts tomorrow. Donate at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. A lot of people are excited that I mentioned on the air yesterday that I'll be on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. It happened. I recorded an interview with Howard Stern, and there was so much to talk about, we've made it a two-parter. You can hear part one on the next Fresh Air. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Kevin Riley, um, most of us are uh, kind of uh, used to getting uh, mailers from political candidates in the last couple months, weeks before an election, big elaborate uh, mailers that tell us why we should vote for them. Occasionally we get uh, reports from legislators on their work in the district, but we don't get full-color, four-page broadsheets from uh, people who are going to run for re-election a year and a half before the election. And yet Sharon Cooper up there in District 41, I think she's House District mm-hmm. 41, the Republican 43. 43. Thank 43. you. Tom Faust is in that district. Uh, we don't get uh, this a year and a half early, Kevin. And it tells us that Sharon Cooper up there in East Cobb County understands the Democrats are coming. Yeah, I think that it's a sure sign of uh, some concern, and 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 it's it fits into what we just talked about. I mean, Marietta. I mean, yeah. that's an area where there's uh, uh, if you're Republican, you're feeling vulnerable. If you're a Democrat, you're seeing opportunity. Well, let me dash a little cold water because I did send out a four pager <laughs> <laughs> after each session uh, oh, okay. because I wanted to make sure. But let me also add this: is and and Sharon is is one of these folks who runs a great ground campaign. That district is in play. Okay, I'll I'll be free to. Uh, I want to make sure folks understand that. That being said, getting back to my point earlier. One of the best ground campaigners that I know is Sharon Cooper uh, when it comes to being attentive to her district. And matter of fact, she used to give seminars to the rest of the Republican legislators on taking care of your district, you know, making those phone calls, uh, going to those meetings, 
knocking on those doors, not just relying on on media, but actually face to face. Uh, and I've seen uh, over the years a number of candidates, both Republican and Democrats, mistakenly think that they can take Sharon out and and they come back uh, defeated. And so I'm not counting Sharon out. I know that district is in play, uh, but I've seen other folks try to take her on and I wouldn't underestimate her. I think the big thing here is, and Ed has really did a really good job of dashing a little cold water on our uh, sort of yeah, uh, sort of messed up the way <laughs> yeah. I was headed. But but no, I, I I think Ed is right. I agree with everything. But I think here's the difference, and I know Amy is going to touch on this a little bit too, is what Kevin just said. When I say that this seat is not just in play, this is the one of the top tier targets for Democrats. Now, what I would say to a lot of my Democratic uh, friends and supporters, and I agree with Ed, listen, you're going after someone whose constituent services is impeccable. And if you look at some of the things that she's highlighting in her mail, I mean, she's talking about improving transportation infrastructure, creating safer schools, um, and actually higher pay for teachers. I'm actually campaigning for it right now, Ed, <laughs> on the air. Yeah, thank um, you. I'm just, you keep going. <laughs> um, the, the Democrat has got to be a moderate Democrat, because while that district is changing, it's still a very moderate uh, district. And what Representative Cooper is doing here is that she's creating the narrative. She's getting out in front because she's going to get uh, held accountable to a lot of her votes. So I think it's a smart tactic. It is a little early, um, but we'll see what happens. Amy, why do you give you a last uh, word on this one? Well, thanks. Um, I think what's interesting are the issues that she decided to highlight. What's not mentioned on here is HB 481. What is mentioned is uh, the bill to protect people from retaliation if they report to their landlord that they've got mold, the higher pay for teachers, uh, the maternal mortality issues, which are very real in the state of Georgia. Again, you know, the infrastructure, which is its own issue, both in Cobb and sort of more broadly throughout. And so I think what is interesting there is that line that gets walked and maybe, you know, as a sort of political scientist is sort of looking at the content of this mailer as compared to, for example, a lot of the issues that people were running on back in 2018 and especially um, coming perhaps out of like the Kemp campaign or uh, Jeff Duncan's campaign that, you know, there is a bit of daylight between there. And I think that that sort of really does highlight, as Theron and Ed were saying, that this is all sort of shifting and that the debates that are happening over who's going to represent Metro Atlanta looks a lot different than debates we see yeah. happening over yeah. who's going to represent we, rural Georgia. And, and if I could just one thing, she did vote against 481. Well, that's what I was going to say. Did. Just to be right. crystal clear, right, right she, yeah. she was adamant in her statements mm-hmm. about being against abortion, but she voted yep. against the yeah. bill. And we quoted her saying this bill is blatantly not constitutional. All right. So uh, just a microcosm of what we're going to see unfold in legislative exactly. ra- races across those purple, increasingly blue districts uh, up there in the northern arc of metro Atlanta. Um, Amy, let me start with you on this. We've been, the, the conventional thinking that we have expressed on Political Rewind ever since 481 was being debated, and then after it was passed, and when Governor Kemp signed it into law, was that, yes, George is going to try to get this to the Supreme Court and hope to be the state that will give the Supreme Court the opportunity to rule uh, Roe unconstitutional, Roe v. Wade unconstitutional. And what we've been saying on the show is, well, you know, there's precedent here. Roe set a strong precedent. The Supreme Court uh, honors precedent. Uh, Astare decisis is a very firm uh, part of of, of constitutional thinking. 
But now, and that stare decisis is just that, we honor the previous precedent set, right? Yes. Okay. Now we have a case that has nothing to do with abortion. Uh, it, and I'm not gonna, I don't even want to talk about what the case was. <laughs> Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt. Okay. The, why does it matter in terms of what we're now thinking about what the court might do when Roe comes before them? Matters for two reasons. First, because the court, which was uh, divided five to four along sort of traditional ideological lines in California v. Hyatt, struck down a previous precedent from the early from the mid 1970s. Uh, and secondly, it's important because not only did they strike it down, but that was then accompanied by a dissent from Justice Breyer, who is not a firebrand. He is extremely mild-mannered. You almost never see him writing something which is greatly impassioned. He writes the much more wonkier ones that was read by many as sort of a clarion call of this is what might happen with Roe v. Wade. The concern was that there was very little attention given to the claims of stare decisis that the court really sort of, the majority of the court uh, really didn't give a lot of attention to that and suggested that it was okay to um, strike down things that were simply, erroneous, quote, erroneous and contrary to our constitutional design. And what was notable is that his dissent mentioned, it quoted from Casey v. Planned Parenthood, which is sort of the, one of the progeny of Roe, uh, quite deliberately and in fact ended with sort of a statement from Casey talking about how one of the reasons why we need to keep stare decisis. And so it was read by many as sort of a wake up of sort of a statement of, they're coming for Roe. Yeah, Ed, I mean, just to, to you know, my oh, yeah. own layman's uh, language on that is that the court can't just unilaterally decide that an earlier decision like Roe, oh, we don't agree with it, therefore we're going to overturn it. There's precedent. No, they here. can. It, it, well, they, they, they can, can, but there's they certain certain rules that they have to go through a lot of legal right. gymnastics right. To in, get away in order to do that. Right. And and my question is whether or not Breyer, rather than trying to send a signal out to the public at large, was sending a signal to one particular justice, and that's Justice what is Roberts. That, yeah, saying what? Because uh, Justice Roberts is what I would call, and I think other folks have called him this as well, an institutional conservative, meaning that he does take very seriously precedent. He does take very seriously about the court staying in its lane. Uh, I do recall on the uh, on the case involving Obamacare, when a lot of folks wanted him to be part of folks striking it down, he he did not. He found a reason to uphold it and made a point of going. Elections have consequences. This is an election matter, not a judicial matter. So he kept the court in its lane. And and so I think Breyer was was basically sending a signal. But we need to cut to. to I mean, I'd like to just because we're running yeah. short on time. Cut to the bottom line on this, Kevin. And what it suggests is any people who are out there thinking, oh, no, Roe is probably not going to be overturned because of precedent, because the honoring of stare decisis, all that sort of thing, we're now seeing that Roe v. Wade very well could be overturned, depending on on, on, on the vote of the court, of course, and, and but I think it's, Judge, it's vulnerable. Judge Thomas's writing on it makes that crystal clear. All right. Um we're going to watch that very closely. Uh, we know that the ACLU right now is working on a, uh, a, a suit to file to uh, stay the Georgia law from taking effect. But they have months, basically, to do that, right, Ed? They do. But uh, once it's filed, uh, my guess is, at least at the trial level, 
Uh, that'll be somewhere between 72 to 96 hours before it's stayed. Uh, and then we'll work its way up through the courts. And there's not just Georgia, but there's, what, three, four, five other states with Correct. similar laws. Yeah. 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 And Alabama probably this afternoon and is then, passing their abortion And then we'll see what will happen uh, sometime in the next two or three years. And, and real quick, one of the reasons you're seeing all these states taking up this sort of abortion bill on uh, in Georgia's heartbeat bill is to provide the political narrative for the legal pathway to yeah. try to overturn Roe yeah. versus Wade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I you know, I, I always I, I like to pay attention to uh, comments that are being made as we do the show on Facebook Live and Twitter. I, I we, we got a long and very impassioned uh, note. Uh, that I saw from uh, one of you who's listening who thinks that the fact that we said that uh, Ralston has been a speaker who's somewhat moderate in his tone uh, really was offended by that uh, because <laughs> the, the, the comment suggests that we were condoning the fact that he took some violent offenders and, and, and made it easier for them to uh, avoid uh, 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 going through the court process on this. If that's the impression we created... I just want to say there's no question that we do not favor being able to excuse people who are uh, accused of violent crimes from not having to face the court process. And I'm sorry if we left that impression because it certainly well, yeah. isn't I mean, what we're thinking. Know, as, as someone who's been a trial lawyer for 35 years, uh, I believe that the courtroom and the courtroom should be open and that uh, due process should go forth. Right. And, uh, and that's what we tried to do. Uh, with our changes in the law uh, in March was to make sure that folks had a redress in the courts. Okay, we are just going. Let, let me say this, because, you know, in this business, you got to defend yourself. I'm not suggesting in any way that if it to be true that Speaker Rawson abused his power and he's found guilty, I'm condoning it. Right. But if we just sat up here on the show and said, don't rush a judgment when a guy's yeah. got 38 counts against yeah. him and for insurance fraud, we can very well say on a political talk show, yeah. The political implications versus what, what legally is going on, yeah. and, and it's very hard to separate it too because he is a lawyer, but he's also the speaker yeah. of the House of Representatives. Fair enough. Uh, all right, we're out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, before we leave you, I want to mention uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan has just come through his first session as uh, president of the state Senate. It's been an interesting session for him for many reasons, both good and somewhat controversially. And we're going to have him as a guest tomorrow on Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein and I will talk to him about what he, uh, how he felt about going through this uh, session of the legislature. So I hope you will all uh, join us for that show at two o'clock tomorrow. In the meantime, Amy Steiger, Walt Theron Johnson, Ed Lindsay, and Kevin Riley, it's been great to have you here today. I'll be back again tomorrow with another Political Rewind. Take care.